0: Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dale. Citrus Blast. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. sign of victory. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we get cracking on this episode, we just want to direct your attention to a couple of things. Firstly, our YouTube channel. We've got loads of cracking video content on there, including the recent recording of my live stream playthrough of my own Super Mario Maker 2 Super World, which I did last week. And hopefully, by the time this episode airs, there will be even more streaming content, potentially including my playthrough of Bug and Rayman on the Saturn that I teased last week. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Minty's run through Super Nange World, coming in the next couple of weeks as well so please do check those videos out and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss out on all this great stuff coming soon we also have a patreon page for those of you looking to get a bit more out of the podcast or simply want to show us a bit more support you can do that by going to patreon.com slash our three cents loads of great perks available on all of the pledging tiers so please do check that out this week, we have our 27th favourite video games of all time. Oh. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. After a controversially obtuse question <laughs> last week, Chris has accrued a four-point lead again, but let's see what happens. Star Fox for the snares had a unique way of changing the game's difficulty. To do this, you had to A... Go to the options menu. B, travel into the secret black hole zone. C, enter the code from the game manual. Or D, select a different path.
1: D, select a different path.
0: Oh, Minty was in there with the correct answer. Congratulations, Minty. You are on the start of a comeback. Big thanks to everybody for all of your support and belief in me. Yeah, mate, you're very welcome, always. <laughs> <Yeah. I mean. laughs> so, we've had a question come in from Facebook, from David Boys Layton, asking us what we make of the recent Nintendo Giga leak. Ooh. Now, for those of you who this has passed by, in, in the last few weeks, a whole load of code and documentation from Nintendo's history was recently leaked to the public, including things like the code... For Luigi being in Super Mario 64, previously unseen areas and builds in Ocarina of Time. There was details of like an unmade Pokemon MMO on the Game Boy. Also, the leak contained a lot of private information about the developers, private correspondences, documented philosophies, and, and stuff like that. Now... I mean I absolutely don't give a shit about any of the details in the games that have been found. Like I'm I'm just not I'm not interested at all. I I think finding out behind the scenes stories about like the making of games is interesting, but I wholeheartedly believe that the people who made the games have a right to tell those stories themselves and to be fair, they have. There's loads of official content out there looking at how Mario and Zelda and you know, loads of other franchises came about. Obviously, it's illegal what's happening, and it's a serious breach of privacy for the developers, and that's just really, really bad, you know. And, and, and also, it's, it's not like WikiLeaks, where leaking secrets of government corruption or conspiracies, you know, that were trying to be covered up. This is just leaking data of normal people doing their jobs for no real end other than to satisfy the wet dreams of the total Uber nerds who <laughs> seem to think that finding <laughs> Luigi in Mario 64 or finding the actual Triforce in Ocarina of Time is tantamount to witnessing the second coming. And I don't care about those people having their whims satiated at the cost of honest people's privacy. And in terms of like protection of people's intellectual property... I, I'm quite protective of my own work processes and, you know, I absolutely wouldn't share the original edit project files of a film i would made to somebody else. You know, that that's that's mine as, as much as the end product is, you know, because in the hands of somebody else, it could be bastardized, reused and, and copied into a form that's not representative of my work and not representative of their capabilities as a, an editor either because they've stood on my shoulders it's the same with this game code and being used by modders now. It's like, there are so many developer tools and templates and communities out there for people to use. Like, use them. Don't be a cunt.
1: <laughs> You're absolutely right.
2: <laughs> what do you think? Maybe I'm going to be the one that's kind of, uh I don't know, the controversial one, because I, I think it there are some positives in it as well, that... Obviously, having kind of intellectual property and and having digital property and and having personal information, everything leaked is is terrible. And like you said, it is illegal and and you can't condone that. But what it does show, and, and this is one of the first times we've seen it in this context, is that Nintendo clearly as a company care about their own long term preservation and, and what I mean by that is, like, you know, Panzer Dragoon Saga that we talked about in the Sega Saturn, Sega have basically come out and said, I think we lost the code down the back of a sofa. <laughs> and and they don't care. And there's, there's a huge amount of companies that have made real, like, seminal works over the years that are now... Completely gone in in terms of like, there is no source code. It can't be rebuilt. It can't be remastered, and and it's left then down to hacking communities if they want to do stuff with with these games to basically reverse engineer and, and decompile. And and what this shows for Nintendo is that they they back up everything. If if they were doing this much stuff back all the way to the to the SNES era essentially onwards, that that's really positive in terms of digital preservation for all these games going forwards into the future. But it's also for me frustrating because it shows that. With this information, I know like you said, Jonathan, it's like about allowing developers to tell their own stories and things like that. But I want to see something like a Mario 64 release that is a proper archival release in in the same way that you might buy a Blu-ray of a film like a Criterion Collection disc that... You know a a real masterful work is then held up and includes all this behind the scenes stuff it includes all these different bits and pieces and essentially like little edits or rough cuts or or deleted scenes whatever so you get a bigger picture of the the design process and i would love that to be something that was actually happening in in a legitimate way like i would pay a lot of money for a, a modern version of mario 64 that wasn't just a tarted up version of the game it had a huge kind of like museum archive within it as well of little prototypes or playable builds or other bits and pieces just to to give you more information about where this game came from and how it got to the stage it was. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see that as well. Yeah, and and that part though because we've seen this stuff exists. There's part of me that, in a really entitled way, is like, "Well, can't you just do something with that? <laughs> like it's all out there." I, I I just I would love developers to to be given the freedom to say, actually, I I think Mario 64 is a hugely important piece of work, and it deserves that kind of treatment. And I don't know if we'll ever get there, because we're still not quite at the stage where enough everyday people see games as being important Mm. to, to really kind of like carry that weight, maybe in time. And again, because this stuff exists, it's quite positive that, you know, it could happen potentially for Nintendo. But... Yeah, as as much as like you know, we we joke about stuff like oh, Luigi's in in Mario sixty four, and that being a big deal. That's not the stuff that interests me as much as knowing that there is a proper preservation effort for these things within like internally at Nintendo. Yeah, uh, and I hope that that continues into the future, so that you know, in in thirty forty years time they could release a version of Mario Odyssey that that has all this kind of design documentation with it and you could learn these these things about the game that otherwise is lost. You just, you don't know anything about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's, it's a bit of a seesaw, but I, I think there are positives in there for me. Yeah, no, I can understand that.
0: I mean, like I said, you know, I think that taking the right away from Nintendo to tell that story themselves yeah. is, m- makes me just on a level of principle, just genuinely not care because... It's like if, if somebody else wrote a biography about me, it may, may, may be true, may be right, may have interesting stuff in there, might
2: not. It's i. Like, but it's irrelevant, you know? It's, it's kind of as well, this is a, like a, a strange way of looking at it, like when musicians have um, things released posthumously after they've died. Yeah. Like if, if you think about something like Jeff Buckley, who put out one yeah. studio album in his, in his career and, and somehow since his death has released 65 studio albums. That's not representative of, of him, is it? No. And again, that's that's coming from an estate that's not the artist. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Minty, have you had any th- any
1: thought any further thoughts on the matter? No, not really. It's nice listening to these two sides of, well, not the argument, but the the issue. Obviously, privacy is a huge thing, and also the the fact that there is stuff that is sort of in the vaults of Nintendo. The, this is a good thing as well. I, I I will be honest. This did completely pass me by because just trying to find out about what what actually happened, like nothing really interesting Mm. came out of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't really know enough about it to take quite the passionate stance that the the two of you have. But I I just like finding out interesting little things, but not in a way that's where the the information has been collated and released borderline maliciously, Mm. really. This is what I'm getting from... Just reading around on the topic, but there's a there's a Twitter account I follow that uh, every now and then I'll be like, oh, this is what Pikachu looked like before um, they actually like, drew him in the game. Or can you believe that, that Moltres was originally going to be a horse? That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Just nice nice little bits of trivia. So I really like that. So
2: you, basically you wanna know who the bucket mouse is, but straight from the bucket mouse <laughs> the the bucket mouse's
1: mouse. The bucket Mouse's <laughs> mouse. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what have we been playing this week? So I finished Paper Mario, oh. uh, the origami king, uh, which is yeah, fantastic. Just had a great time with it. I I'd no problem getting back into the game after the main story is finished to try and hundred percent it. I almost got there. I did, there were just two last trophies I didn't get but I, I was just not having fun trying to get them so I decided to, to call it a day. But it was really fun to like potter around and find the remaining toads and treasures. Just wonderful stuff. I also picked up Slay the Spire again. Now I'm, I mentioned it before because I picked it up on the Switch and it was really, really good. But at that time, I'd sort of overdosed somewhat on roguelikes and, and didn't quite have the steam to get into another one. But it's just had this really, really good mobile port released. And I think it's a really good fit for mobile. Just simple one finger commands, good to pick up and play. And I'm really enjoying it. Lovely. In terms of a car battling game, it's as good as any I've seen. And in terms of a roguelike structure, it's it's got the, like the balance really... Nails as well so yeah i th- i can see myself playing playing a lot of that going forward now which is which is really nice and i've also started playing a new game called carrion which has recently been released oh
2: yeah on the switch are you playing it
0: yeah yeah and it's essentially it's the 2d metroidvania game which obviously you know i love and i always <laughs> think it's a really good fit for a handheld so even though I, I did actually have access to it on xbox game pass on my computer i thought oh, no, i I wanted to play it on switch so the twist with this game is is it's billed as being a sort of reverse horror game. So you are the monster and you're this great hulking, pulsating, tentacled abomination that escapes from an underground lab and you just tear everything up in your path. I'm not, not a huge way into the game. Played a couple of hours. And I mean, it's incredibly violent. but like, you really demolish these humans, and it is, <laughs> it's it's very graphic. Um, it's it's very fun. It's, it's a heck of a power trip, and and just the way you move, just like it's beautifully animated. The way that it sort of coordinates how your tentacles are moving as you're traversing through the space. It reminded me a little bit, actually, of that that end section of Inside. When you yeah. remember that, Chris. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing playing more of it and, uh, and seeing how it develops. Chris, what have you played this week?
2: Uh, I've finished some games. What? I'm at the end of stuff. I've, Alice is done. Oh. <laughs> Alice, Alice is over. Oh. Like I, I won't drone on too much because I've talked about this for a few weeks now, but this is a game that I can genuinely say has great visual direction really good sound work has an engrossing and, and really dark story by the time you finish it mostly decent voice acting challenging combat good environmental puzzles and yet is let down in every single area by its pacing yeah and and this is like the criticism I've had a few times but there's just too much of this and there's too much of that and it's really frustrating as well that the the story scenes are really kind of spread quite thinly across the main chapters before you get to the final chapter, and it's just like a massive dump of exposition all at once. <laughs> and it's just, it's a really inelegant way to, to tell this story that, mm. like I said, is really dark, has kind of some, some really interesting stuff as a way of like retelling the kind of Alice in Wonderland story. It was just a bit aggravating by the end. Yeah. Because it's like, it could have been an awful lot more than it was. I don't know how the game was really received at the time. I, I didn't read up too much on it back back in the day. But I, I was reading more recently that there was a third entry planned in the series that's been in development limbo for for years and years. And I think it deserves to to exist. It deserves to go somewhere and not just flounder as as nothing in kind of you know perpetual gaming limbo. But I worry now that ea who published the last two games are never going to publish a third one given how they're operating nowadays and it would mean that something like this would end up on kickstarter and it will get like a 50th of the budget it needs to kind of tell the story that american mcgee i presumably would want to do yeah and it's it's, it just wouldn't deliver on on what were the best ideas in in madness returns so who knows where that's going but finished done happy to say off the list (laughs) actually finished the game for a change i've also basically finished forager again i've played it now for just under 30 hours in this run so i've really really gone to town uh it's still the same high predictive, actively idle game that we talked about last year really really love it i'm kind of at the stage now i'm mopping up the last of the kind of quite grindy feats or achievements in game yeah And, and they kind of take the sheen off it a little bit because it's it's a game of like rampant progress up to a point and then suddenly I'm looking at the list of things it wants me to do. And it's things like have a trillion coins in your possession, a, an actual trillion. <laughs> and, and I yeah. kind of, I'm thinking like that that's probably 30 hours again on top of what I've already done just to, <laughs> to sit and watch timers go up. So I'm probably not going to bother at yeah. this stage, but out of like, I think it's about 105 feats in this this updated version, and I've probably done about 103 or something. So I, th- I think I might just put it to bed and say we're done with that. Yeah, but yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Like, if anyone hasn't played Forager, I would absolutely recommend picking it up. It's not very expensive. It's on all modern platforms, uh, and it plays really well. I imagine on a on a mouse and keyboard setup or with a controller, like I've been doing on the Switch.
0: Have you heard of a game called Factorio? No. I have not. Please tell me more. So I was told about this game. Apparently, it's the second highest reviewed game on Steam. Oh, wow. And a mate of mine was playing it the other evening, and and the way it was described basically made it sound like Forager. Yeah. You basically take over... I think it's like you start at like the start... Either you land on a planet, and you're starting from scratch, or it's like Earth... Starting from scratch again, or something, and apparently, like you have the knowledge of like a modern person, but like st- starting a civilization from scratch, yeah. and so you basically slowly build, rebuild civilization that mainly works through the way of building machines and automating them to, to do things. And mm. apparently, you can even do like multiplayer with five hundred people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks it looks enormous and 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 insane and quite overwhelming. But, yeah, but like I said, the way it was sort of described to me made it sound like it was, uh, yeah, really similar to Forager. Wow. Apparently it's very good. It's, um, it's, it's still in early access, yeah. which apparently it's been like that for about four years. But apparently it's nearing completion, so I'm sure that p- people will probably hear more about it when uh, when it's finished. But it ha- it's got like 60,000 like positive reviews or something like that. So. <laughs> yeah, pretty
2: high praise, isn't
0: it? Yeah, exactly. Minty, how about you? What have you been playing this week?
1: Well, I also finished The Origami King this week. Excellent. Yeah. A good game, I think, with a mm. fairly satisfying ending. You know, I, I I was a little disappointed that the Toads didn't get a comeuppance for just being dreadful, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, I really thought, like, during the very first area in the game, like the picnic road and the, that forest, I really thought it was going to be like a, oh, the Toads are actually the villains because they cut down the big grandpappy tree, or whatever it was. I was like, oh, okay, maybe we're looking at I don't know, the ramifications of making things out of paper, if, if that's sort of a, an industry that exists in this universe. But no dice, unfortunately. Yeah, I probably won't bother going back to it, trying to 100% or anything, because for me, when it comes to 100%ing a game, I've been very much spoilt by JRPGs and the like, because <laughs> yeah. completing as much as you can is a means to an end. And the end is being powerful enough to punch out literal gods in (laughs) like half a second and beat the game super quickly. Just stick it over your knee and give it a good spanking. I don't don't really (laughs) see how the Origami King can match up to that. So I'm just not going to, uh, I think. That's fair enough. But what I have been playing, uh, now that I have finished it, is I've gone back to playing Tales of Vesperia. Oh, Ooh. lovely. Yeah, I hope to have had it done by now, but I've just started the third act. Um, it's been fun actually playing the definitive edition because it includes all the stuff uh, from the PlayStation 3 version that I missed out on because I bought it on the 360. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to get it finished and sit down with a Game with GameFAQs page the length of Ulysses and really 100% <laughs> something. Excellent. After. I think, I think the one before it, or I think it was Tales of the Abyss, it came out a few years before. I replayed that one on the 3DS when it came out, um, and it was after that game, and then going back to Tales of Vesperia, it was just nice to have a game in the series with a plot and premise that uh, actually made sense. Yeah. Like... I can't remember a thing about Tales of the Abyss. It was so deeply entrenched in incredibly <laughs> dense lore. That I really had a hard time trying <laughs> to decipher it. Like, yeah, phone stones—big rocks with prophecies etched onto them—that empires follow to the letter. The concept of the hyper resonance. There was just, there was just too <laughs> much going on with like really complicated names. And because I was there on the 3DS, I. I was just trying to keep up with stuff on the tiny screen really wasn't going to work for me but <laughs> yeah. they sort of they dialed that back uh, i think with tales of vesperia great story Your your you're yuri lowell a roguish young man who lives in the slums somebody steals the magic rock that creates water in the center of town so you head off to get it back things snowball from there and you end up creating a literal army of spirits to destroy a giant space octopus that feeds off the energy imbued in all living things On the way, you make friends with a princess, a child's genius, a child's coward, (laughs) an old lecher, a dog who smokes a pipe, among others. You murder members of the cultural elite in clandestine acts of vigilantism and explore the ethical ramifications of your actions through the back and forth between yourself and the imperial knights who are led by your childhood bestie add into that uh, the guilds the free people who work outside the jurisdiction of the empire with complex power struggles of their own and honor codes that add to the richness of this fully fleshed out world there's there's a re- there's a lot going on but it's never too much to sort of like keep track of combat's good as well i really like the tail series for the linear motion battle system that they've trademarked it works really well you snap to a 2d plane to fight things with the option to free run in 3d to avoid attacks, switch targets, and all that. Different weapons as well give you different elemental attributes that can either hinder or help you, as well as give you different skills that can give you stat boosts or unlock altered versions of your combat techniques. Like, it's a great way of spicing things up and moving things forward in the series. Like, you've heard of bonking someone on the head with your sword. But if you use this different sword, the bonk turns into a donk and it deals fire damage instead. <laughs> I just, yeah, I really love this game, especially for the cutscenes, most of all. Your party is a really nice mix of personalities and skills and seeing the relationships build between them is a really lovely experience as well as watching what happens in the world through their eyes. That's why it's my 27th favourite video game. There it is. There, <laughs> there it is. I, ah. thought was, I thought that where it was heading. <laughs> yeah, I was very excited. Happy to have been able to pull that off. Thank you, Jonathan, for your patience. <laughs> Excellent.
2: You haven't played one of these games either, have you, Jonathan? I've never played a Tales game. I should play Zysteria that sat on my shelf from Minty's Christmas present to me. You should, because Mm. at the moment, it's just rude. I know. (laughs) I've still got a few months until this Christmas is fine. (laughs) Shall we
0: move on to the rest of the rankings? Yeah.
2: Go on then. So,
0: next we have... My game?
2: Go on then. Let's hear it.
0: I'm here for it. So when I opened up my list to see what game was coming in this week, I I was quite surprised that this game was actually this low down on my list. I've been like racking my brains to think of reasons why. And to be honest, I'm still not sure what thought process I went through because this is one of my all-time favourite games and... I think if you were going to try and name my top 10 games, Chris, you would probably put this in there, because I think this is another classic Jonathan game that is intrinsically linked to me. It's a GameCube game. It's one of the first horror games that I played, uh, that I could stomach anyway. It was also my first exposure to a whole world of classic horror literature, such as Edgar Allan Poe, and more importantly, H.P. Lovecraft. It is Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem.
1: Wow.
0: So for those of you who haven't heard of Eternal Darkness, I'm not surprised. It's a GameCube exclusive that's never been remade or remastered since. So if you went down the PlayStation 2 route growing up, this would have passed you by. It is a psychological horror action-adventure game where you play as several different characters throughout time whose lives are all intricately linked through history by the forces of these Lovecraftian deities seeking to enslave humanity. I've never seen a game structured like it, where you play as these 12 totally different characters. It could have been jarring, but the differences in control mechanics and fighting styles were, you know, they're different enough to make them feel like different people, but also similar enough so that you didn't need a dozen tutorials throughout the game. Something that really helped sort of pace the game with, with this structure is that the game mainly took place in only about six different locations, but the characters would then exist in different time periods of those locations. So often you'd find yourself starting a new story and it was it was familiar, but different. And the whole story was told through the lens of your main protagonist, Alexandra Roivas, who is called to the mansion of her grandfather Edward after he's murdered... And as you start poking around his mansion, you find the Tome of Eternal Darkness, a sort of Necronomicon alike book that is chronicling the history of these intertwining people. And as you start to uncover the truths of what your grandfather was really wrapped up in, then you then live through these people's lives. And it's it's such a fantastic array of characters and stories that each one is Absolutely compelling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through the brief, a brief synopsis of each of these characters... ...just to give you a taste of uh, of, of what we're dealing with here. So you had Kareem, the Persian swordsman... ...seeking to find a treasure from the Forbidden City for the woman he loves. But whilst he's on his quest, this woman is unfaithful... ...gives herself to a nobleman... Woof. ...is mutilated and killed by the nobleman's jealous mistress... ...and then her ghost appears to warn Kareem about the true nature of the artefact... And he then kills himself so he can be with her again and watch over the artifact together. I mean, just for a start, that is a whole game's worth of story right there. And that is (laughs) just a fraction of what's going on here. You then return to the Forbidden City in the 1400s as Roberto Bianchi, a Venetian architect who is taken as a prisoner of war by a warlord and is now helping with the construction of an evil temple called the Pillar of Flesh. And when they're surveying the area to lay foundations, they stumble across the Forbidden City. You then return a further time in... The 1990s as Michael Edwards, a Canadian firefighter sent over to help extinguish the oil fires lit by Iraqi troops in the Middle East after the Gulf War. And an explosion leaves him trapped in the Forbidden City and he ends up having to explore deeper to, to try and get out. Then you have the Anger Tom Ruins in Cambodia. And you get to explore these first as a court dancer, a girl called Elia from the like 1100s. She's, like, imprisoned in there in these ruins by a fertility god as, like, a sacrifice, which is... It's all quite... Well, it's, a fair, oh, it's all very grim. <laughs> and then you return in the 1980s as Edwin Lindsay, an intrepid archaeologist who bears a striking resemblance to one... Junior! My favourite location in the game, and, and also probably my favourite couple of characters, appear in the Oublier Cathedral in France. You first go there as... A young lad called Antony, he's a messenger for Charlemagne in like, 800-something AD. And you're tasked with delivering a scroll to Charlemagne from one of the monks at the cathedral. But Antony is suspicious of the scroll, so he opens it to make sure it's safe. And he's then cursed by this corrosive magic and then starts to decompose slowly over the rest of his story as he uncovers the horrific conspiracy operating out of the cathedral. And then you return there in the 1400s as Brother Luther a Franciscan monk on a pilgrimage to see a holy relic, the hand of Jude. But he's then drawn into a murder conspiracy and then drawn into the depths of the cathedral to confront an ancient darkness. And finally, you return once again to the cathedral as Peter Jacob, who's a field reporter during the First World War, where the cathedral has been converted into a field hospital. Over his time there, he starts to notice that soldiers keep disappearing, and he begins to dig deeper and finds the monsters dwelling within. And you also get to play as some of Alexander Roivas' ancestors, such as Maximilian Roivas, who was this wealthy doctor in the 1700s, and he first starts to notice bizarre and horrific things happening in the family mansion he's recently inherited. And you also get to play as Edward Royvers, working as a younger man in the 50s as a clinical psychologist who is also investigating the darkness that seems to operate within the walls of the mansion and and is constantly pursuing the family. It's not only a phenomenal set of stories, but the way in which they link together and coincide over the eons is deeply satisfying to watch happen. And and you genuinely get attached to each of these characters. And and it, it hurts when so many of them meet some... I mean, inevitably, very grisly ends. But it, but it's 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 great as well that, I mean, not all of the characters die. Some of them do escape their chapters with their lives because otherwise you, you'd stop caring about halfway through once you realise that, you know, oh, there's no point caring about this person. They're just going to get torn into by some, I don't know, tentacled intestine leviathan in a few minutes anyway. And there's also a lot to be rewarded for playing through the game several times. So each time you start a new game, you can choose to align yourself with a different ancient. Either there's Chaturka, Ulyoth, and Zelatath.
2: <laughs> Nicely pronounced. It's,
0: it's, very, it's, it's classic Lovecraftian <laughs> sort of words. Like, the way Lovecraft often names things is, is it comes up with names that are essentially unpronounceable. Yeah. So that they evoke sounds that only make from like the body turning inside out. And uh, and yeah, they followed similar sort of uh, style with these, and uh, yeah, but you hear the, you hear the names a lot, so you, you get familiar with them. <laughs> but each one of these ancients correspond to a different element in the game. So Chitorga is red magic, which is power. Ulioth is is blue magic, which is which is magic, and and Zelatath is green magic, which equates to sanity, and. Each strain of the game you play will find you coming up against different variations of monsters, and also during the encounters with the ancients themselves, they'll they'll be according to sort of where you're aligned. And if you play through all three variations of the game, you're then rewarded with an epilogue that links everything together in just in a further way that is is mind-bending and awe-inspiring and brilliant. The story draws a lot of inspiration from authors such as Edgar Allan Poe but it, I mean it really is a Lovecraftian tale at its heart and 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 Lovecraft is these days a pretty common reference in popular culture and has proved a fairly constant influence on, on a lot of video games as well but th- this was the first time I'd seen anything like this and I think it was one of the earliest examples of Lovecraft breaking into the mainstream and It's, for me, it's led to a great love of his work and, you know, other things inspired by him in all the years that have followed. It's amazing to see the level of design that there is in the game, considering the lack of similar reference points. It's, you know, it's easy to look at something amazing like Bloodborne and praise its design, which, you know, is outstanding. But Eternal Darkness was was doing this from from a fairly blind place. And the environments in it were amazing and awe-inspiring, but the real excellence came in the monster designs, a truly horrific creations, moving and operating in the most, like, body shock horror ways as well, with all the gory sound effects to match to. You'd have, like, these bone thieves hiding in the skin of their victims and would burst out when you least expect it. And there were these, like, hulking abominations later in the game that looked like a bloody cough come to life
1: and <laughs>
0: oh. they're like winged beasts that would raise their wings in a display of sheer intimidation that, that, that i mean made you shiver to your very soul and the ancients themselves would i mean extraordinary true to the style of classic lovecraft it's it's difficult to describe them because they're so weird and so vast and just yeah just trying to comprehend them is uh, is horrific enough one of the other ways the game really breathes life into the monsters and and this world is is through a device that is introduced in Maximilian Revers's storyline so when you find an and an, well when you kill a monster you then have the option to perform an autopsy on it and this would generate an entry in your research journal and then you can access these beautifully drawn anatomical drawings showing the monsters in gross detail whilst you then got a journal entry narrated by. Maximilian Roivas, incredibly performed by an actor called William Hootkins, who, uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> who, who's, who's work uh, admittedly is fairly niche, but he does appear in the original Star Wars film as pilot Red Six, uh, of course, better known as the cult figure Porkins. So that's a bit of trivia there. And... These remain the finest piece of voice acting I've ever heard in a video game. Oh, wow. The amount of character he, he brings to these is phenomenal. And you can hear every part of his psyche fracturing as he's trying to comprehend the horrors he's examining. Like, if, if nothing else, have a look on YouTube for these and listen to them. They are just an absolute treat. Something I haven't mentioned, which is a bit weird, as it was pretty much the the, the gimmick that the game was sold on... And this is the the sanity system. Oh yeah. I mean, this is something that has been repeated in games since. But you know, it started here. If your character saw something horrific, your sanity meter would would go up, indicating how disturbed you were feeling. And the higher it got, the more you would succumb to various sanity effects the game would throw at you. It would start with you know kind of subtle things like hearing a just a just a simple slow and painful weeping, and that uh, <laughs> no, just grow louder or noticing blood dripping from the walls or or the, or the camera starting to tilt and just throw you off kilter. But the higher the sanity meter rose and the longer you sustained it at a higher level, you you would get like more severe sanity effects that they, they even went quite meta with with how they operated. Like you would walk into a room and all of a sudden a horde of enemies would attack you only for the game to tell you that your controller had been disconnected. And as you, you, you're you panicking, trying to figure out what's, what's happened, your character will come to their senses and you realise, you know, the game was just playing a trick on you. Or you'll start sinking into the floor and become stuck or your head will fall off. <laughs> There's one that like simulates turning the volume down on your TV and one that like turns off your TV altogether and there's this one that tells you your save data has been corrupted and simulates starting the game from the beginning. (laughs) It's incredibly fun stuff, like very inventive and and frequently quite disconcerting. Like I said, I don't quite know why I've placed the game this low down on my list because I love it every bit as much as any of the games that are still to come. It It is a phenomenal experience and one that I would encourage any video game fan to play if they haven't. It's a shame that, that Dennis Dyak, the, the director of the game, hasn't been able to make the sequel he wanted to make for the game. He came close a few years ago with a, a Kickstarter campaign for a game called Shadow of the Eternals, which you know missed out on its target. I mean, these days we're spoilt for choice with Lovecraft in video games, but there's something about the way that he treated Lovecraft's stories and created his own lore that you know, I, I, would, I would love to see, I'd love to see Dennis Dyak. Something Lovecraftian again, but uh, yeah, for now, my 27th favorite video game of all time. Ah, yeah, should it be higher? I I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a yeah, it's a Panzer Dragoon saga situation again, but there we go, Eternal
2: Darkness Sanity's Requiem, an absolute masterpiece. I don't even know if I've seen this game in motion. (laughs) I mean, I, I know about the game, yeah, but like, like you were saying. I know about it from you telling me about it, but I don't think this is one, like, I don't remember sitting in your bedroom as kids, like, watching you play it. Yeah. So my, my entire memories of this are, like, a handful of screenshots I would have seen in magazines and then your, your vivid description of these sanity effects... So before you were even talking about it, I knew you were going to mention, like, the volume down thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew you were going to mention, like, the, the save data corruption. And that's not because I've read up on the game extensively. It's because you told me about it when you were, like, 16, 17. Yeah. So that, that has kind of just um, been this... My pervasive memory of, of Eternal Darkness is Jonathan Dunn's pervasive memory of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did you ever play it, Minty? Do you know what? I didn't. And I don't think I've ever actually seen it in motion either. I remember... It was it was fairly close, or it was a launch title for the GameCube, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it came out yeah. like the it came out the the Christmas after it was released in the summer.
1: Yeah, uh, I I always I was always intrigued by it, like the the sanity meter and how it was like a more yeah more a lo- a more Lovecraftian take on the horror genre. So it always interested me, but too spooky, too spooky. <laughs> this is it. Yeah, yeah. If I had the means to do so today, I probably would try and emulate it. But not when it came out. I think I was I was in possession of a cowardly heart. So <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there we go. Maybe it's one that I can uh, I can stream soon after I've played through Rayman and Bug. Uh, I would watch that. Oh, good, good. It it would it work well in terms of being an episodic video as well. Yeah. With the episodic nature of the of the uh, of the game. So yeah. All right. I'll add that to the list. Great. So, lastly, we have Chris Dow. Can you tell us about your 27th
2: favourite video game of all time, please? I can indeed. It's very different from your two today. Mm -hmm. A rule for my list that I kind of set myself when I started doing this, and I've mentioned it before, was an effort to kind of try not to include multiple entries from the same series. And for me, that was to try and keep the countdown as expansive as I could. I wanted to have as much representation of, of the things I enjoyed and played as I could. And, of course, there are some exceptions, so, for instance, I've already included Mario Maker, for instance, and obviously there's going to be more Mario on the list. Just fucking hope so. Yeah, I've, I've alluded to mm. in a couple of your entries when you've brought up certain games how much I enjoyed them. So, it's, obviously, things will, will come to pass eventually. But my criteria for those and, and any games that had multiple entries had to be that the franchise entry needed to be different enough that they wouldn't be a reasonable substitution for one another. Like as, as if it was like a desert island thing almost that, that, you know, if I could just play one version of this game, what was the best representation of that? Yeah. And I mentioned that when when I talked about GTA 3, Grand Theft Auto 3, that basically I was using that to represent the whole franchise. And and that's because if I was going to talk about Vice City or Liberty City stories on the PSP or San Andreas, they're all close enough. And their framework is, is so close to GTA 3 that they didn't feel like they were distinct enough to have like independent inclusion but today's game is a direct sequel. This is I think this is the first one on the list that is a literal like numbered direct sequel and it is Outrun 2, the arcade racing game. Oh. So this is a direct sequel to my 54th favorite video game of all time, which is where I placed the original Outrun. So Outrun 2 released about two decades after the original first came out on arcades. Uh, and then later ported to home consoles in, in two different iterations. So there was a vanilla release of OutRun 2 as an Xbox exclusive, and then there was a multi-platform version called Coast to Coast that was like an updated revision that came out for PSP and PS2 and, and Xbox again, so it was like a multi-platform one. Although OutRun 2 is very clearly a game that follows like the framework of the original in some way, so it still has branching stage paths, it still has a sense of like journey in its locales that I talked about a lot when I when I talked about the original, But what separates the two is their approach to actually driving, like the the main part of the game. That for 1987, obviously, the original OutRun was not realistic in as much as we think like photorealistic, just because of the limitations of the era. But it did try and be serious. And, And the driving for the time was about as realistic as you could do in an arcade setting. So there was a basic gear shift... You had to manage the gas and the brake to get around corners and everything else. Other traffic provides kind of like its own little challenging obstacles as you're, you're driving down these multi-lane highways. It did obviously have things that were not realistic in, in as much as you could drive between these like varied locations that couldn't possibly be that close together in, in a map. But that was to give you that sense of kind of progression and movement and everything else. And other than that, the actual physical driving was was about as semi-realistic as it could have been for the time. Outrun 2 takes like the shell of that, so still has kind of the branching paths and everything, but it views it through a lens of, of much later arcade games like Daytona USA and Ridge Racer that both had like really exaggerated handling, and also kind of like the real arcade stuff like the, the silly arcade stuff, like the Rush series that had lots of ports to the N64, and things like Crazy Taxi as well, like Sega's own Crazy Taxi. And the developers, I think, looked really hard at the original game, the original Outrun. And then made the bold design choice that instead of having to slow down for corners, instead it'd be much more fun if you could just power slide around every corner with no penalty to speed. And and I mentioned that a little bit like that sort of handling model when I talked about Ridge Racer 3D on the 3DS. And, And it's here again that it's just so much more fun to be able to take all corners at, you know, perpendicular to the road. It's it's just a lot lot more fun to get around that way, <laughs> and I think making that choice was absolutely the right thing to do to to make this a fun modern racing game. Because of that, I think if you try to play Outrun Two as, as like your first foray into this series, you'll never get very far if you, if you haven't grasped the idea that you're not supposed to drive this in a realistic way. Yeah. So it's 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 all about speed, and and the drift is so kind of intrinsic to the way the game controls and and the way it's designed that. I, I have to imagine like the way it would have been developed would be they thought about that mechanic first and then kind of spiraled out from there. You know, if we had a big giga leak of, of Sega stuff, <laughs> maybe we'd find some prototype about that. But, you know. Now, I, I didn't get a chance to experience OutRun 2 in an arcade until, as with most of my arcade experience, I went up to the arcade club in Berry. But what I did have when I was younger is plenty of time with the game across the home port of 2 to the Xbox uh, and then coast to coast on the PS2 and the PSP. I, I had a version of all of them. And in contrast to games like Sega Rally on the Saturn, which were just an attempt to make an arcade-perfect title when there was no extra frills and, and bells and whistles, this was you know a game that launched at a time when gamers wanted a bit more value from their games. And as a result, it's just jam-packed. It's absolutely stuffed with stuff to do. The Arcade release has the ability to play like a standard point-to-point checkpoint race in like kind of traditional outrun style. It's got a time attack mode, it's got obviously a two-player mode with if cabinets are connected together, but it also has this thing called a heart attack mode where as you're driving along you're given additional objectives by your passenger. So it could be that they ask you to to drift a certain distance or overtake a certain number of cars or or outrun a particular rival or avoid collisions or whatever. And, and the home conversions really doubled down on that idea and, and tried to extrapolate as much as they could out of that idea of giving you extra things to do as you were racing. The home versions, all of them were developed by a team called Sumo Digital. They include everything from the arcade, but like I said, also just have single player content and unlockables that just seems to trickle out of it. It's, it's never ending. So there's a huge expansive challenge mode that uses the framework of that heart attack mission mode. There's extra cars and music. There's there's bonus tracks you can unlock from other Sega arcade games like Daytona USA 2. There's even, in the original OutRun 2, an emulated version of the original 1987 release. Oh, nice. So there was, there was an awful lot to do on, on that original original release on the Xbox. And it's just an incredibly well-paced package that's, that's breezy in its presentation, but really quite deep and challenging underneath. Like the, the missions are not easy. Even the first tier of challenges will take several attempts to get through. It's also, uh, and this is something I think is is missing from a lot of games these days, it's, it's a real looker because it follows Sega's like blue sky design of that era. So if you think about screenshots of, of Sonic Adventure, or if you think about screenshots of Crazy Taxi, like I mentioned, everything is this like neon bright blue. Everything is really welcoming and feels like a day at the beach with, you know, kind of like crystal waters and, and vibrant skyboxes and a big chunky landmarks peppered around the, the roadside and and big set pieces with like planes flying over top or fireworks going off in the distance. They just wanted it to be fun, like a nice place to be. Just like the Swan. <laughs> it's just a very nice place to be. It also, and, and this is like pertinent to your interests, Jonathan, uh, it has a really good soundtrack because it takes the original Outrun music and then it's all rearranged by Richard Jacks, our good friend from Sonic oh, R. Excellent. We are supersonic racing. <laughs> I don't think these tracks have the same vocalist as Sonic R. I don't think they feature TJ Davis, but... With your eyes closed, there are certainly some tracks on this soundtrack which have a female vocalist and could easily be Sonic R B (laughs) sides. Yeah. So if if you're interested, look up tracks like there's one called Night Flight, there's one called Life Was a Bore that they have that kind of like warbling early 2000s, late 90s kind of like Euro pop feel. Oh yeah. And it and it really does complement the game well. Sumo would go on to make the Sega and Sonic All Stars racing games that we've mentioned like in passing, talking about Mario Kart and stuff before and these are not only good games they they're games that owe a huge debt to outrun 2 and what sumo did with those ports because even though outrun 2 is not a kart racing game it's it's a more traditional arcade racer it definitely has hallmarks of the kart racing subgenre because of the way it controls that that kind of suggesting that you need to be power sliding around every single corner or, or avoiding particular obstacles or like bouncing balls that are coming down the road or whatever. There's these extra bits that make it feel like a kind of like proto-kart racing game. And it definitely, I think, informed how they chose to take that series going forward into the next few releases. Not wanting to digress too much though, OutRun 2 is, is a game that really needs to be played. And ideally it's in a really loud arcade with friends, but even the home ports, like I said, were really, really good. And it's just, it's a wonderfully summary title that, that took kind of the driving and, and journey focus shell of the original game, but brought it screaming into the new millennium. Like this came out in about 2001 or 2002, I think, because it folded in like two decades worth of arcade racing development, whereas OutRun at the time in, in 1987 was like a real trendsetter outrun 2 didn't have to do that like lots of games had come before it that it could kind of crib from and say okay we want the we want the loud soundtrack of that we want the handling model of that and, and they could do something that was pulling in lots of different references as opposed to to treading their own path like the original it's the type of game that i think is like the antithesis of modern simulation races as well if, if you imagine like forza and and gran turismo anything like that there is no real lineage in these there's kind of a very different path that different developers have taken over the years and I'm always going to prefer this like the reason I enjoyed like the Horizon series like the Forza Horizon series or like the Burnout games or any of these is because it takes that kind of arcadey feel as opposed to a simulation racing feel Yeah, and and that's always going to do it for me it's just more immediate it's more fun it's kind of I don't know. I don't want to necessarily like feel how realistic a handbrake feels when I play a game. <laughs> I, I I want to kind of you know in the same way we talked about kind of the ultra realism of things like Red Dead and stuff in the past. Yeah, that's not always the best fit for what I want from a game. Not saying it doesn't have merit and value and whatever, but I, I want something that's a bit more just super escapism, just really silly fun. And like I said, for this for the same reason I loved Ridge Racer three D, I think I'm always going to love Outrun and, and its sequel Outrun 2, because you know, taking a corner at speed is fun. But like I said, taking it at right angles to the road is is more fun. <laughs> and as long as I can do that, I'm, I'm always going to pick these sort of games up. Yeah. So yeah, Outrun 2, great arcade game and an even better home port because of all the, the bonus unlockables and goodies that Sumo Digital stuffed in there. Here's a question for you. Yes. Do you prefer playing racing games
0: in an arcade cabinet or on a console? I mean, in terms of uh, controlling
2: it with a with pedals and a wheel or with a control pad? It, it's quite a hard question because I think I've probably obviously spent more time with a control pad, in, you know, in, over the years. But it is more fun with, with kind of the whole setup. And, and I guess that feeds into the idea that, you know, arcade games are meant to be a quick, punchy experience, whereas a home port is something that you're going to spend a lot more time with. So going right back to when I talked about Sega Rally, at home on the Saturn I could sit and play time trials for ages and I could just play the same content over and over again because it was about getting better but it's not as fun as in an arcade where you're playing with another person or or you're trying to beat kind of like a high score or get that little bit further on your one pound credit so it's, it's a really hard call to make but I think I've, I've probably enjoyed all of these games more in that kind of like loud arcade setting if I've had the experience of, of doing it.
0: Yeah, I always like playing games in an arcade cabinet. I mean, obviously we have very different relationships with arcades because yeah. I never really <laughs> have played games in arcades. But the way I feel when I play on an arcade game is, my, is I assume it's out to get me. It's yeah. out to, yeah. to trick me out of my, my money and my time. And so I feel that the peripherals that you play with are... Part of that, like I'm not yeah. going to be like a real conspiracy thing and be like, "Oh, it's all rigged anyway," <laughs> in it. But you know, I, I feel that I mean, the, the one of the big problems is the fact that the, the arcade stuff I have played is just because all of the equipment has just been abused yeah, by yeah. thousands upon thousands of, of uh, teenagers in Margate, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so so it's never never feels like a very responsive experience. But I, I remember after I after I learnt to drive, which I did when I was like 25. I remember being in an arcade and thinking, "Oh, actually, I wonder if this—I wonder if this is going to feel better now that I actually know how to drive." Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, the answer is is no, no, because it does not. That uh, is not how it controls.
2: Uh. The best way to approach this stuff, and it's probably, it's happened to me inadvertently. Like, there's a lot of games I've played over the years, and then I've played later on in an arcade. And, and for something like Sega Rally, that I had an understanding of the handling model from the Saturn and I had kind of a, a a loose memory of like the track design and everything else. So that then when I sat down and said, like, when I first went to the arcade club, I'm going to play Sega Rally for half an hour. It was more fun because I had like a basic understanding of how to play it. Yeah. And that's like you say, I think arcades are absolutely out to get you. That, that's kind of the whole point that they want you mm-hmm. to spend money to kind of extend your time or, or your credits or whatever. Yeah. But the, the games that I know from home, like I played um, Time Pilot is a really old, like 360 shoot 'em up, essentially. You've just got a joystick, you just fire in whatever direction kind of thing. And I played that a lot to get all the achievements on the Xbox port years ago. And then kind of just by accident found it in the arcade club and was really good at it. <laughs> and and I wouldn't have been good at it if I hadn't put five, six hours into it originally on on that kind of home port. And I think that's a lot more fun because then it's like, it's different because you're playing under the pressure of the arcade, but equally you're you're kind of drawing on kind of your own past experience, so you're not at an immediate disadvantage because you, you can kind of call what's going to happen a little bit more. So there we go. Another three games, an eclectic trilogy
0: once more. First of all, we had... Tales of Vesperia. And then we had... Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem. And finally outrun to if you enjoyed this episode or if you've enjoyed any of our episodes please do share the podcast on social media you can reach out to us on social media as well facebook.com slash our three cents chat to us there tell us your opinions on the things that we've stated our uh, according opinions upon or anything else
2: <laughs> or you can reach out to us individually you can find me on twitter at jonathan dunn you can find me as
1: always week in week out Chaz underscore Hodges. Uh, and following on, I am always eternally Clement underscore Boo.
0: And please do check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe to that as well and share the videos that you like. And please do give us any suggestions or recommendations that you'd like us to stream in the future or any videos you'd like us to produce, we'll be more than happy to, well, you know, at least consider that. And also, we have a Patreon page. If you do fancy pledging a little bit more and getting a whole lot more for your buck from us, then head over to patreon.com slash 3 cents and pledge away. But until next time, we shall say, fare thee well,
1: foldy roll.
2: In this quarter, on the Green Lit Podcast Network, Chris Sims and Matt Wilson. And in this quarter, VHS Oddities, Confusing Animation, and Modern Not So Classics. Plus Snacks, Movie Fighters. We watch movies and beat them up.
1: Rank and Vile is a podcast dedicated to ranking every horror movie ever made from best to worst. Every single one of them. Each episode, we add a couple more to our list of hundreds and then justify why we think Killer Clowns from Outer Space is a better movie than Dead Ringers. No, really, that that did actually end up happening. Check us out on the Greenlit Podcast Network, where you can find a new episode every Wednesday.